This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group, with showrooms in Canterbury and Maidstone, offering a range of new and approved used cars, including MG, Seat and Vauxhall. Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Ishmael Kawaja. Hello, hope you're doing well on Wednesday the 19th of October. Thanks for downloading today's podcast. A harrowing report has revealed at least 45 babies died at two hospitals in Kent because of failures in care. An independent inquiry has been looking into more than 200 cases involving maternity services at East Kent Hospitals Trust dating back more than 10 years. It was commissioned in 2020 following growing concerns over the quality of care at the QEQM in Margate and the William Harvey in Ashford. The trust had previously been fined more than £700,000 following the death of baby Harry Richford, who passed away just a week after being born in 2017. An inquest concluded his death was wholly avoidable. Well, Dr Bill Kirkup, who chaired the inquiry, explained the findings at a press conference. I want to say at the outset that this cannot go on. We cannot go on treating each individual service failure as though it's a one-off never to be repeated, isolated failure, because experience says if that's what we do, it'll pop up again somewhere else in the time to come. And I do not want to be in the position ever again of having some families who have been harmed telling us about service failures that the NHS should have known about first and did not. In carrying out the investigation, I've kept that in mind as much as, but not more than, uh, what has actually happened in East Kent. What has happened in East Kent is deplorable and harrowing. We have numerous instances of care that was not given to the right standards, consistently failed to meet standards, with deaths and significant harm in scores of families. We had 202 families that came forward. In 97, deaths, injuries or other harm could have been different if care had been given to the standards accepted nationally. In 45 of the 65 stillborn and newborn babies who died, they could have had a different outcome had care been given to the standards accepted accepted nationally. As well as that, we found that there had been frequent instances where significant harm was caused to people's well-being by the unkind and callous way on occasions that they were treated. Uh, And some have been deeply affected by that, many have been deeply affected by that. We haven't found that there's been a single clinical cause of the failure. What we've found is four underlying themes that led directly to these problems. The first is extreme failures of team working. As you know, maternity care has to be delivered by groups of professionals working together from different backgrounds from different professions, uh, they have to work together effectively, they did not. And there are various reasons for that, including lack of trust and lack of respect. But there is also, inescapably, the fact that professionals can sometimes get the impression that they're working to different goals. It might be to reduce the amount of intervention, or it might be to not reduce the amount of intervention. A team that works to different goals, in my view, is not a team. Secondly, failures of professionalism, of compassion and of kindness. People were dealt with rudely, uh, arrogantly and with hostility. 
and you'll find numerous examples in the report. Women were not listened to. Um, they reported a range of things that should have been listened to. For example, that they were in labour, for example, that their membranes had ruptured, for example, that the baby's movements had altered and they were disregarded and that led directly to instances of, of harm. The same failures of compassion and listening happened after devastating outcomes such as the death of a baby. People were treated with dismissiveness and denial. Um, not only does that cause people deep distress, it also prevents learning. So that the same set of mistakes kept happening over again because people were not properly looking and learning. On at least eight separate occasions over a 10 year period, the trust board was presented with what should have been inescapable signals that there were serious problems in the maternity unit. They could have acknowledged that, they could have investigated, they could have put it right. That started in 2010, the first instance was in 2010, but they didn't. In every single case they found a way to deny that there were problems, to disregard, to say that on the whole services were okay or at least good enough and they were wrong to do that. As a result of that, the pattern of behaviour and of harm continued unaltered through the entire period of the investigation to the end of 2020. It need not have happened like that. He went on to say that a culture of deflection and denial within NHS trusts when they are questioned about potential cases of substandard care is a cruel practice that needs to be addressed. Kelly Rudolph and Dunstan Lowe lost baby Celandine in 2016. Our daughter was born uh, in November of 2016 uh, and died five days later. Um, through the perinatal period, so from, from the time just before she was born until after she was born, doctors made poor clinical judgments in the case of my care and the care of my daughter, um, which led to her um, being um, very sick at, uh, when she was born. Um, and she died five days later. Uh, in that process, they blamed me and um, shifted the blame to me. And in doing so, um, began a process of um, what we would consider covering up the truth of what happened to us and to our daughter. And it was only over time and also um, right up to today's report that we've discovered the scale of the problem and so we realise that we're just part of a larger pattern and that was very disturbing to learn. And of course now we realise by speaking to you and by um, taking part in this, we realise that this is actually an opportunity for things to change because problems are ongoing. It doesn't make it less harrowing, but there's some relief in knowing the truth is out there, the facts have been laid out clearly and the trust should now face up to it and apologise. And Bill has set out very clearly, you know, where the where the serious failings are. So of the 202 cases they looked at, 97 of those um, could have been avoided. And of the 65 dead babies, 45 of them would be alive today. If the correct practices have been followed, if national guidelines have been followed. And that's just basic care. We're not talking about, you know, like gold standard care. If basic care had been given, our children would still be alive. They blamed me for um, delaying um, an episiotomy, um, a process during labour, um, and they took all of the questions that I was asking um, as a mom as refusals of care instead of what they were, which were questions about 
decisions they were making, on what basis of evidence they were making those decisions, um, and those sorts of things. Um, and in the period after our daughter died, there was a time um, in which we were, you know, seeking answers, and we knew that there would be an internal investigation, and we tried to participate in that, and we asked to be involved in the process. We never took an adversarial approach to the trust. We always attempted to cooperate and and to move forward, learning with them. So my husband and I, we attended a training day for midwives and nurses and consultants in September, you know, almost a year after our daughter died, because we wanted to improve things. And what's clear from this report is that there were no improvements being made. There still are no improvements being made because those who are accountable at the very highest level of the trust continue to act in an aggressive and hostile way towards the truth. Accountability must come now. Dawn Powell's son Archie was just four days old when he died from sepsis at the QEQM. For families like us, where your child has been taken away, if forever got that hole in your life that you will it'll never it'll never heal she says medical staff didn't spot the signs quickly enough i was the one carrying the groupie strep that he first caught and i've always held a lot of guilt for for that but but that just grows into anger towards the people that didn't do their jobs now, with more reaction to today's report, our reporter Lucy Hickmott's been speaking to Stephanie Pryor from Osborne's Law, which represents victims of medical negligence. I think the report is such a distressing read, actually, um, that I think it will be very difficult for many people to review and to read, especially the families concerned with the treatment that they've had at East Kent Hospital, but also other families who've gone through similar circumstances through other NHS trusts. And your firm has obviously represented some of those families. I mean, what is this experience like for them? Obviously, they've already gone through the worst thing a parent can go through, losing a baby or, you know, having a very serious injury, you know, in childbirth. What's it like then going through this inquiry process? Harrowing, I would say. Um, A lot of families that I deal with who've lost a baby through a stillbirth or a baby born after birth alive, but then has died shortly afterwards. It, it's the worst experience ever and to have to speak to somebody about it and go through the litigation process is absolutely harrowing. And we've heard that there were 45 baby deaths that could have been prevented. I mean, that's really shocking for, for people to hear. And not only is it shocking, it's, it's very difficult for people to come to terms with because mistakes and errors have been made when they were at the hands of the NHS, who were supposed to provide, you know, the standard of care that was suitable for them to have a healthy baby and to know that they weren't properly cared for. And this has happened. It's devastating. The government's due to give its response later. But meanwhile, we've been given a statement from East Kent Hospital Trust Chief Exec Tracy Fletcher, who has apologised unreservedly for the harm and suffering that has been experienced by the women and babies who were within their care. She added, these families came to us expecting that we would care for them safely and we failed them. We must now learn from and act on this report. Kent Online reports. Our other top stories now. A Kent man's due to go on trial in December, accused of murdering law graduate Zara Alina in East London. The 35-year-old suffered serious head injuries and she walked home from a night out in Ilford in June. 
Jordan McSweeney, who's 29 and used to live in Rochester, has also been charged with robbery and will enter a plea next Monday after failing to turn up the Old Bailey for today's hearing. The family of a Kent mum who was murdered by her husband more than 20 years ago says their world stopped when police told them her remains had been found. Debbie Griggs was pregnant when she went missing from Deal in 1999 and her husband Andrew was jailed for life in 2019. Her sisters described him as a complete psychopath after Debbie's remains were discovered at the house he moved to in Dorset. Now, an RNLI crew member has been describing how he and colleagues have been abused and shunned by friends for saving asylum seekers in the channel. He's spoken out anonymously as the charity releases shocking footage of a rescue of five people attempting to make the dangerous journey, including a 14-year-old girl. Lifeboat volunteers at my local station are advised to remove the crew stickers from our car windscreens and only attend the station in an emergency. Instead, we are careful what we say in shops and in pubs, not only among strangers, but also between friends. Neighbours no longer speak to some of us because we volunteer. Others, whose work vans parked outside the station are emblazoned with company names, receive threatening phone calls late at night. Even the kindly volunteers who sell souvenirs in the station shop, older than my parents, are getting abuse. Suddenly we've become the bad guys. Almost all of us are volunteers. When our pages go off, we leave our jobs, our homes and our families to launch the boat and go to sea. All this time our purpose has remained unchanged. We go to save lives. If the crews haven't changed, are the people we are saving suddenly less deserving? I'll let your conscience be the judge of that. Dinghies are always packed the same way. Women and children huddled on the thin plywood floor, men on the outside seated on the inflated hull. Sometimes the floor has been spray-painted with numbered sections so that traffickers can extract the greatest profit from the least amount of space. It used to be that dinghies only had 20 people in them. Now we often pick up vessels with two or three times that amount. After all, this is a business. The dinghy bottom is usually swilling with a mixture of seawater, petrol and vomit. Floating on top of this highly inflammable rank cocktail among the plastic bags and spoiled belongings, you might also see a foot pump and a pile of floppy bicycle inner tubes in case the boat sinks. This is because the buoyancy aids supplied by the traffickers are sometimes stuffed with a little more than cardboard. After bringing the people ashore, we immediately hand them over to the authorities. We're never told what what comes of them. According to the Home Office's latest figures, for those claiming asylum via this route, significantly more than half are successful with their claim. Much more importantly though, it turns out that all of them are mums and dads, grandparents and grandchildren, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. The only difference between them and us is the colour of our skin or the religion we were born under. If you want to listen to his account in full, you can hear it by clicking on the story at Kent Online. So far this year, more than 35,000 people have crossed to Kent in small boats. The government insists that they're tackling the issue as charities call for safer routes. This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with car dealerships in Canterbury and Maidstone. Elsewhere, a shop in Tunbridge Wells has been criticised for selling fabric with prints of gollywog dolls on it. 
World of Sewing has been slammed as disrespectful and hurtful for having the anti-black material on display. It's the second time the store on Camden Road has come under fire, but bosses say it's widely available online and popular with many customers. A self-made millionaire who left school at just 16 has opened Sheppey's first business hub. Six acres of land near Neats Court in Queenborough will eventually be home to 30 units for national and local companies. Building work has just got underway, with the first tenants expected to arrive at this time next year. Our reporter John nerdon has been chatting to Tom Allsworth, who spent £18 million on it. I was born literally within walking distance from the spot we're standing on today. Um, I've been in business on the island for 30 years. Um, I grew up here, I went to school here, and I always wanted to be in business and I wanted to be in business on the island. So you, you already own a number of companies, I think. T- t- talk me through those. I have a number of business interests on the island. I employ around 400 people in total. Um, but the property side is something that I've always had a passion for and I've recognised that the, the, there's a demand for quality premium business park on the island. Something that the island can be really proud of. Does this uh, follow the fact that over the years, the, the generations, Sheppey has lost an awful lot of industry? Well, Sheppey originally, of course, was built around the port Sheness, and the port Sheness has declined over the years. So it's been incumbent on the business community to grow the business on the island. And I'm hoping that this business park will be the place, the premium business bar that everyone on the island wants to come and be part of. And you've got another development nearby? We've got a sister site just along the road. Um, That's going to house just one unit, uh, one large unit of around 40,000 square feet. Whereas this is a business park that's going to have around 30 units on it, as well as um, some office space, an admin centre, somewhere you can come and have meetings, use the facilities and enjoy being part of a park. Do you think the island is on the up and do you think it's got good communications? The island now is part of the National Road Network. You can hear the traffic in the background. We're literally standing on a dual carriageway that links directly to the M2. So the island has become now a hub for business in the same way that other areas within Kent have. And we are as close to the National Road Network as anywhere in the country. And of course there's a rail network as well, isn't there? The rail network comes to the island as well, but it's particularly the road. This is why the site is so premium because it's right next to the dual carriageway on the way on and off the island. So literally, if you want to demonstrate that you've got a, a good business, you can come and be on the site that's right next to the main road on and off the island. So everybody who travels on and off the island can see your see your business every day. The first tenant will move in sometime around um, autumn next year, autumn 2023, and then there'll be a continuous build over the next two or three years to fill the park completely. Now the Kent Online podcast been given data showing which parts of Kent have the best and worst recycling rates. Researchers found around half of residents in the boroughs of Ashford and Tunbridge send their waste for recycling, but just a quarter of people do so in Dartford, the lowest amount in the county. I've been chatting with Helen Bird from campaign group Recycle Now, who are behind the findings. So recycling is, there are lots of things that influence um how much we recycle so it's about the collection services that are provided by the local authorities it's about 
how packaging is designed and, and whether or not it can be recyclable. And it's also about how um, all of us as individuals take part in recycling. But, you know, recycling is quite confusing, um, particularly when it comes to plastics. It's, it's sometimes tricky for people to know whether something can or can't be recycled. Um, and, and that's why at, um, at Recycle Now and RAP, um, we have something called the Recycle Now Locator. So you can tap in your postcode um, and select the item and it will tell you where and, and how you, you can recycle those items. Things that we, we're typically getting wrong for once for a better time or you know we're putting things in in the hope that they can recycle but actually they can't um particularly plastic bags and, and wrapping so things like crisp packets frozen food bags cereal packets um outer wrap that goes around fruit and veg those types of plastics can't be recycled at home but people can take them to the local supermarket for recycling and the other thing that um, that is often quite confusing is broken glass. So, you know, we've all had have had one of those unfortunate accidents of of smashing a glass. Those small fragments of glass are actually quite a problem when they get into a recycling center. So the best thing to do with a with a glass is that, that's broken is to put it in the bin, not the recycling. What would be your message to someone who wants to be more environmentally friendly, wants to recycle, recycle properly, but just isn't sure how to approach it? Well, I think first thing I'd say is just let's just do a quick check to make sure that we are recycling everything. So we're really, really good now at recycling from the kitchen, um, but we're not necessarily quite as good at recycling from the bathroom. So we often forget things like toilet roll tubes, um, perfume and aftershave bottles shampoo and conditioner bottles so make sure that we are collecting all of those things because they're really really valuable materials um, and and then if you're not sure about something then you can head to recyclenow.com put in your postcode select the item and it will tell you whether or not you you can recycle it. And this is recycling is really important for the environment. So every year we're saving a gigantic 18 million tonnes of carbon um, by our, our collective efforts of recycling. And that's the same environmental impact as taking 12 million cars off the road. So, um, so it's great news, but we've got a bit more that we need to do um, in terms of making sure we're recycling everything that we can. Obviously, there, there is that push for, for everyone to be more environmentally conscious but just focusing again on those lowest rates of recycling among residents I mean Dartford for example 24.5 percent it can't totally be down to people not knowing how to recycle that do you worry there's an element of people just not bothering there is inevitably a, a smaller proportion of the population that um that are not um as as caring um, about recycling as others um, and it's important for the environment that you know we all play our part and um, and during the cost of living crisis as well it's it's thinking about these these resources which for us is at the end of the journey you're just trying to get rid of something actually it's the beginning of the journey or just part of the journey for that item of packaging so what we need to do is get it back into the system and enable that to be remanufactured into something um, into something else another item of packaging or a product and and actually that is a cost saver overall and uh, as well as being really important for the environment that we can't continue just to 
deplete our planet of the resources that we have. Dartford Council say less than 1% of waste collected in the area gets sent to landfill and most of it's used to create energy. Ahead of half term, it's been confirmed parents with children in Medway who qualify for free school meals will be able to get food vouchers. It works out as £15 per child per week. It comes after the council were criticised for not handing out vouchers in the summer and running holiday clubs providing meals instead. And Tom Cruise is thought to have flown into Kent to film his latest movie. He apparently arrived in Chatham by helicopter yesterday afternoon before being taken to the nearby historic dockyard. It's not known yet exactly what the film crew there are working on, though as mentioned in yesterday's podcast, it is believed to be a big budget movie. Mission Impossible, anyone? Well, that's all for today. Thanks ever so much for listening. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. You can also now get access to the ad-free Kent Online premium site by subscribing at kentonline.co.uk forward slash subscribe. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with showrooms in Canterbury and Maidstone, offering a range of new and approved used cars, including MG, Seat and Vauxhall.